And welcome back, everyone. I wanted to first preface this episode with an acknowledgement that today's episode is a bit on the slow side. The three of us wanted to dive a bit into where we see Gen Z GOP fitting into conservatism and the larger conservative movement at large. Please stick with us, especially as we have an exciting guest coming next week. Let's get right into the episode. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to episode two of the Gen Z GOP podcast. This is Ryan Doucette. And I would like to welcome my co-hosts, Mike Bretto and John Olds. How we doing? Happy to be back here. Great times. It's only right if I first preface this episode with a moment to appreciate all those who tuned in last week. The outpouring support has been unreal. And on that note, I would like to also issue a similar statement to those who left not so pleasant responses. I am equally thankful for your fiery language. It helped me realize that we are most definitely doing something right. There was a tweet under our launch video that asserted that this individual didn't understand the difference between this and the Democrats, with this referring to Gen Z GOP. This tweet received a lot of attention, but I think it is important to recognize the immense differences that exist between Gen Z GOP and the Democratic Party, which in recent years has embraced more liberal platforms than ever before. It's important for people on the right to reflect on their principles and their values to have a modern application of conservatism. Yeah, Ryan, um, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm sure happy to be back here uh, for another spirited week of nuanced signaling and green energy racketeering and and any number of, of uh, supposed things that we're doing here on this project. But I think you you really hit the nail on the head. There is a little bit of confusion about the mission here and the vision for this project. And I think this episode will serve as a really nice kind of rundown of clarifications and sound application of principles. So when we talk about conservatism, it's often conflated with, you know, politician du jour, you know, who has an R next to their name. And it's just so important that we go back to the basics. So we should start at the beginning here with with John Locke. And John Locke is this 17th century Enlightenment thinker, and he's just unbounded. Uh, You know, this period of time is marked by new ideas and free thinking. And he brought a number of things to the table, uh, both, um, you know, ideas for humanity and ideas for political philosophy. And the first thing we should talk about with Locke is that he was committed to this idea of empiricism. And he essentially believed that we should come to know things, we should come to knowledge through facts and data. And that's a really important uh, state of mind that that he kind of pioneered. Now, the next thing that we should talk about with Locke is one of his works called The Second Treatise of Government. And in the Second Treatise of Government, among other things, Locke talks about what he calls the state of nature. And the state of nature, as he, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he calls it a state of liberty, not license. Meaning that though we are free and we, are, we have a certain element of liberty, we do not have the right to trample on the rights of others. And that will become readily apparent as he continues to write about 
how the law of nature governs the state of nature. And that's where we get this very key idea, um, both in our country and for political philosophy in general, where he talks about how we should not abridge one's right to life, health, liberty, or possessions. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it is. Those are the ideals, the certain unalienable rights that are laid out in our Declaration of Independence. And those come almost directly from Locke. And that's a uh, to understand Locke is to understand America. And one other thing that we should point out with Locke before we move on to uh, the other riveting parts of this, this podcast are he talks about how men, you know, everyone should behave even when we're not defending ourselves. And he essentially says, when you're not preserving yourself, we have an obligation to preserve all mankind. So I guess that is to say, and I don't want to give away too much of the rest of our episode here, preserving the rights of mankind doesn't mean staying stagnant. It means that when we see men and women, you know, having their rights abridged, we should stand up for that. And that is at the foundation of conservatism. From there, we go into our good old friend, Edmund Burke. And Edmund Burke was uh, an Irishman. He was a statesman in the United Kingdom, served in parliament uh, in the 18th century. And Burke, in many ways, built off of John Locke's ideology. Uh, you have his seminal piece of literature, the his reflections on the revolution in France, where he talks about the role of traditionalism and his natural skepticism of revolutionary ideologies. He believed that revolutionaries uh, ended up coming back to bite their uh, however well-intentioned motivations. And Burke also believed that everyone was equal in the eyes of God. And that's another super important tenet to Burke. And that should be extended into our modern conservatism in that Burke is known as the founder of modern conservatism. So we have this foundation with Burke and Locke. And, you know, that's kind of like your AP Euro, AP US history debrief of that. But I think that we can look to the future now and say, all right, how do Burke and Locke bring us to where we are today? And the Heritage Foundation actually came up with a really nice summary, and we'll cite that on our website. And Heritage kind of summarizes the modern conservative movement. And they chart it back to 1953 and the publication of Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind. And there have been <laughs> plays on the conservative mind in, in, in a number of books. And basically, the six principles that form Kirk's charism are the following. A divine intent, as well as personal conscience, rules society. Second, traditional life is filled with variety and mystery, while most radical systems are characterized by a narrowing uniformity. Third, civilized society requires orders and classes. Fourth, property and freedom are inseparably connected. Fifth, man must control his will and his appetite, knowing that he is governed more by emotion than by reason. 
And sixth, society must alter slowly. So that's very much, you know, derived from Burke and Locke. And, you know, in the 1950s, you're kind of seeing this transition out of the New Deal uh, era with, that was defined by Truman and FDR, and you have the election of Dwight Eisenhower, and you start to see a bit of a shift rightward as a rebuke of uh, maybe some of the failures of the New Deal era. And from there, we go to William F. Buckley and the founding of the National Review. And the National Review, for better or for worse, is a journal that captures the energy and the vigor of conservative thought and the conservative movement. And Buckley believed that conservative um, principles and conservative victories were uncoordinated and inconclusive. And he wanted to create a forum to uh, feature these ideas. And um, it kind of became the academic undergirding of the victory against communism and the collective change of thought uh, that occurred where essentially Americans accepted generally that government shouldn't be the, the primary problem solver in our society. And in the 1960s, conservatism continued to grow with the, uh, the nomination of Senator Barry Goldwater as the uh, Republican nominee for president in 1964. And he was kind of the first high profile modern conservative in the Senate and was thrust onto the national stage through his ideology. And though he knew he was going to lose the election, you know, we're, the nation is coming, reeling from JFK's assassination. He stayed true to what he believed in. And his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, really kind of laid the groundwork or continued to build the groundwork for the modern conservative union. So the reason I mentioned Goldwater is not so much that he was the first uh, so-called conservative to be a major party's nominee for president. It's that Goldwater's campaign thrust another high-profile conservative into the spotlight for the first time. And that was actor turned activist, Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan gave a speech um, that's very famous. It's called A Time for Choosing. And a lot of people looked to Reagan to kind of continue that modern conservative mantle. Um, and he did just that, becoming the governor of California in 1966. And um, he took his charisma and principle and kind of combined them to be the first uh, politically acceptable conservative um, on the national stage. So the 1970s and the 1980s are kind of a, a, a tumultuous time in American history. You know, the country is reeling from the end of the Vietnam War, uh, economic uh, stagflation, uh, Watergate shook the trust of the country. And when you have a figure like Ronald Reagan, who comes onto the scene, you know, beginning as governor in 1966, then running uh, for the Republican nomination in 1976, and eventually, you know, running successfully for president in 1980, there were a number of fragments in the conservative movement that needed to be, for lack of a better term, corralled, um, you know, brought together. And I think it's really important to note that Reagan represented one of the first times that traditionalists, neoconservatives, libertarians, um, 
whatever monikers we want to give these groups, he kind of brought them together and they set aside their differences in order to pursue um, the Reagan agenda. And the Reagan agenda um, uh, kind of represented these different groups um, to certain degrees. And these groups were also brought together in the sense that they feared how far left the Democratic Party was becoming, and they were all united in this hatred for communism in the, in the Soviet Union. And they believed there was a moral obligation to defeat communism. And the next sort of iteration of the conservative movement came in the 2000s with uh, Governor George W. Bush running for president on a platform of what he called compassionate conservatism. And again, Bush understood that on the right, there was an academic side of things and a more traditionalist view of, of the movement. And in order to create a politically viable coalition, you needed to create a marriage of the two. And Bush was able to do exactly that. But you know, after Bush became the president and in you know, September of 2001, the country suffered from the attacks on September 11th, Bush was quickly thrust into being a you know, full-on wartime president. And the effects of that, and the, you know, we can debate the merits of the you know, early Bush administration um, you know, till the end of time, but what's important to, to realize about that is that though he was able to marry the you know, two factions of the right in his election, he quickly became known as this warmongering neocon. So to sum it all up, I want to read a quote from the, the Heritage Foundation's um, you know, summation and blow-by-blow blow of the conservative movement. And that is, the impacts of modern conservatism in America have been equally profound. There is renewed public skepticism about big government, a leave-us-alone attitude that stretches back as far as the founding of the republic. Because of conservative initiatives like welfare reform, several of the nation's leading cultural indicators, such as violent crime, teenage births, and the child poverty rate, have declined. And in the wake of 9-11, a prudential internationalism has evolved based on this principle, act multilaterally when possible and unilaterally when necessary. And the reason I went through that <laughs> incredibly long and somewhat boring, uh, you know, diatribe of, about conservatism is that it's not a static ideology. It's rooted in a set of principles where it's essentially maximize liberty and conserve the, uh, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are our natural rights. I think I saw a quote once where, um, you know, talking about this, this kind of state of mind where, you know, we don't fire electricians just to keep candle makers in business. That is to say, moving forward is not antithetical to conservatism. And conservatism needs to be applied to the situations that society faces. But we should never lose sight of maximizing liberty, maximizing opportunity, and keeping in mind that above all else, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is innate to the conservative mind and the conservative heart. So if 
any of you are awake or still listening after that beautiful but a little bit boring explanation on the history of conservatism, I would like to now segue into what we believe conservatism looks like in the modern context. And I'll preface this section by saying this. I think a lot of the criticism that we received from respectable people on the right of the center revolved around our perceived lack of principles instead just talking about policies. And that's a fair criticism. I don't think that in our launch or in any of the publications we've put out so far, we have had the opportunity to do so. And that's fine. It's going to require some nuance signaling. So let me just warn you now, big nuance signal alert for this next segment. What this segment will do is not redefine conservatism. As John said, the words, the ideas behind conservatism don't change. The realities on the ground do. The context is important. So we are going to contextualize conservatism. And there's a reason that we got pushback on that. It's the same reason that people in the past, as John explained, over time faced criticism for contextualizing it then. Conservatism is not static. It changes over time in its application, but not in the ideas. So this section is going to apply it to the modern context. Another impetus behind this, as I said, is that people said we're just policy wonks and don't have principles. And I took that criticism seriously. I will say myself, I love policy, but policy can't come without principles. And I'll explain that here. This section will explain our principles and how they relate to our approach to politics. So first, to hop on John's point about conservatism not being static, I want to explain the compatibility of conservatism and progress. So anecdotally, let me explain why I have strayed away personally from the conservative label in the recent past. You know, I say I'm Republican. Objectively, I am registered and I'm center right. But there's a reason I strayed. But right now, after doing all this research and putting together this segment, I can proudly say I am a conservative. So for Merriam-Webster, one definition of conservatism is a political philosophy based on tradition and social stability stressing established institutions, and preferring gradual development to abrupt change. So some of that I agree with. Some of it I get a little icky with. My biggest problem with the word conservative is that society has come to define it as being stagnant and culturally stuck in the past. I strayed away from it because I don't want to live in a society where women are forcefully relegated to the kitchen, where LGBTQ plus people are not equal under the law, and where people of color do not have the same opportunities as others, which is not to say that that's not the case today. It still is, but there has been some improvement there. So I push back on that tradition part, not because I don't believe people can believe in that themselves, but because we shouldn't stick to the culture of the past. So I agree that gradual change is usually better, sure, but not always. Some egregious iterations of injustice require more rapid change. That's true. We see that in other countries. Hong Kong protests, for example. Another definition from Merriam-Webster is a philosophy calling for lower taxes, limited government, regulation of businesses and investing, a strong national defense, and individual financial responsibility for personal needs. I agree with this 100%. But here's the issue. If I latch onto that, I'm only talking about policy and not principles. Let me define what conservatism means in terms of principles and ideals. For me personally, and I, I think the group will agree with this and we shall see, 
conservatism is about living up to the founding ideals of America. We fail to do that so far. That's true. That's reality. It's not about changing them. That's what the left is doing. We're living up to them. So, for example, let's look at the First and Second Amendments. We believe in free speech. Hate speech is awful. It shouldn't be illegal. People on the left want to make it illegal. We've received hate speech in some of our members. Don't do that. We don't believe it in. But it shouldn't be illegal. The left wants to chip away at our Second Amendment rights. That's not living up to the ideals endowed in the Constitution. We don't. We believe in the Second Amendment. That doesn't mean we can't be reasonable about it. But it doesn't mean we should chip away at it. Another thing that relates to this is the American dream. And I think that's the more modern application of what it means to live up to our ideals. The American dream is a goal. It's an ideal. It hasn't been achieved yet for everyone. We'll discuss this more later, but let's keep that in the back of our minds throughout this segment, that that's what we're striving for. We're not changing the ideals. We're just striving to live up to them. So the left, they want too much federal government, especially, not even state governments, in contrast to the ideals of limited government and federalism. We don't. We should use the government for good when necessary, but it shouldn't be our first solution. We should look at the private sector and charity in other ways. Doesn't mean we shouldn't use the government, but the left, they always want to use the federal government at all costs. That's antithetical to the ideals of America. So how I like to characterize the modern left is this. They're not actually progressives. They've claimed that mantle in a wrong way. The left are revisionists. They want to change America. As conservatives, we want to be America. But we never actually have been America. And when I say that, I mean that America is an ideal, something we should strive for. So conservatism is rooted in the idea that we should keep continually striving to be what the founders intended this country to be. And it is clear that we have failed to do so time and time again. There has been progress. Let's not let that lose sight of us. But we have not done that yet. That's the, that's the essence of America. The essence of America is continually striving to live, to live up to its ideals. So that's why we can be progressive in a literal sense and be conservative. Because we're progressing toward being the country that the founders intended us to be, which we have not yet done. While the left wants to change this country, strip away our amendments and our rights, and make it something that the founders did not intend it to be. So, for example, how have we been, quote, progressive in a literal sense culturally? We ended the cult of domesticity for women. They are working in different fields and sectors, and that's a good thing. LGBTQ plus rights, that we're progressive on that in the sense that as a culture, we have shifted away from times where we discriminate against those people. But in my view, that is actually also conservative because we're living up to the founders who intended for everyone in this country to be equal under the law. All are created equal and endowed by the creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So to wrap up this part, conservatism does not mean remaining in the past on cultural and social issues. If you want to believe that personally, fine. There's a line between believing it and enforcing it on others. Okay, so now that we have clarified that, I would like to describe the three P's I use when approaching politics, not the PPP we're talking about all over the news in recent times, but something much different. Shout out Susan Collins for writing the PPP, though. Absolutely. It's sad that some are attacking her for all the work she's done for the state of Maine. So my three P's to approaching politics, 
are this. Principles, policies, progress, in that order. The reason I already talked about progress is because I'm putting it here. So this segment is going to clarify the principles that we have at Gen Z GOP and how the three Ps are connected. So we approach policies from the lens of our principles, right? We talk a lot about policies because policies are the mechanism for progress, but the impetus for the policies, the lens through which we look at policies are the principles. So the criticism that we were only we were on step two and not step one, totally fair. So let's take a step back and clarify step one, the principles instead of the policies. Without principles, we can't formulate the policies and then we can't have progress. So if you look at our slogan, finding balance, formulating solutions, focusing on the future, that also describes it fairly well. We like to keep letters the same here. We also hate capital letters, if you haven't noticed. Well, Mike, you hate capital letters. Most of us just write like human beings. Well, the others, the other side of things is that they all write in capital letters and go on rants. And that's what we're not about here at Gen Z GOP. So caveat here on the policy stuff, though, and being progressive and conservative. So now that we have described how principles are the lens through which we formulate policies and then lead to progress, let's look at our principles. We were criticized for not having them or at least explaining them. So let's dive into three principles at Gen Z GOP that we think are at the forefront of our mission and how we go about politics. The principles are nuance, as you have seen, big theme in our Twitter, freedom, and opportunity. This was also mentioned in our launch video. So nuance is interesting because nuance itself is quite nuanced. It's inherently a principle, but it's also a framework through which principles are tied to policymaking. So it's a mechanism and a principle. So it's a principle because inherently it is a lens through which we're viewing the policies. And Throughout this, as I said, you're constantly going to see some nuance among these other principles. So at Gen Z GOP, we believe that we need to approach every problem, political situation, or the like with context, and we need to see the nuances. False dichotomies are almost always bad. For example, people come out and say, either we abolish the police or we don't address racial injustice in policing at all. That is just bogus. That is just so politically charged and wrong and bad for discourse. There are definitely ways to find balance without going to those extremes. So that, for example, shows that we're approaching this issue of racial injustice and policing in a nuanced way because there's more than two options. And the options that are not those two are much better. So let's relate this to finding balance. On one hand, we shouldn't compromise on our ideals just for the sake of compromise and policymaking, because those policies are then no longer rooted in our principles, and then they're not going to achieve ends that we intended. But at the same time, we shouldn't die on every hill of principle, because then we'll never pass any policies, so then we'll never have solutions. So then our principles are just going to be on our head and not in practice. So yes, we can't seek progress for its own sake if it violates our principles. Some on the left do that. They just want to pass different things and not look at the implications of them. Because there's going to be unforeseen consequences to institutional stability, as John talked about, especially the conservative mind. Institutional stability is very important in this country and in other countries, developing context. That's the framework, the social contract. Sometimes we have to tweak it a bit. Sometimes it really needs to be upended in certain egregious situations, but that should not be the primary method. If we ridiculously go about promoting change with no recognition of the consequences of institutional stability, we are not being conservative. That's why we don't believe it. 
it's also going to have negative consequences. But like I said, at the same time, if your principles are too rigid, you're not solution-oriented. You need to be solution-oriented and principle-oriented. Nuance alert. So, for example, some of our friends, not on the right side of things, but on the limited government side of things, the libertarians, they are extremely rigid and one-dimensional in their approach to policies. They look at every policy or proposal through one lens. And that lens is respectable, but it's problematic. It's this. Does this policy violate the rights of myself or others? And they use that in an extreme broad application to the point where the Federal Reserve and even a federal income tax is violating your rights. Okay, I respect you for having those position or those beliefs, but that doesn't lead to good policies and that doesn't lead to solution. That leads to a really problematic society. So we can't be that either. So we really need to find balance. That's the nuanced approach. Look at everything with context. Address that not every situation can be looked at through one lens. Look at it multidimensionally. Don't sacrifice your principles. Let them inform them, of which nuance is the prince is a principle. But also, at the same time, don't be so rigid that we don't ever achieve solutions that achieve what our principles should be in action. Second principle, freedom. We all love this one. It is the mantle of the American right in recent times. They love to say this word nonstop. Let's discuss policymaking in the context of freedom. The left is chipping away at your freedom. I don't want to mischaracterize and generalize. That's another really bad fallacy that people use. I'm not saying every Democrat wants to take away your rights, okay? When I say the left, I mean the ever-leftward-shifting socialist part of the left. So let's add some nuance there. Don't be an awful person, like I said earlier. Don't say bad things. That doesn't mean we should ban them. That's not what the country's about. Be reasonable on guns. Like, we can ban bump stocks. I probably would have preferred that to go through Congress. But don't start banning certain types of guns to the point where it becomes a slippery slope. And eventually we have no Second Amendment rights. That's problematic. That's too rapid of change, and that's not living up to our ideals. But at the same time, just because something is still legal doesn't mean we shouldn't encourage people not to do it. There's some level of individual responsibility there that the left is just not seeing. Like we said, hate speech is awful. Don't do it. It's as simple as that, but we shouldn't make it illegal. It violates our principles. So how is freedom inherently related to our third principle of opportunity, which will be a little bit more lengthy because I think it characterizes and sets us apart from the current contextualization of conservatism into our modern one. Right now, in 2020 in America, it is quite obvious and clear, especially after the recent protests, that freedom is not equally applied to all Americans. As we've seen in the protests, people are showcasing the institutional injustice and racism that is present in America. That's true. And thus, we must pursue policies to ensure freedom of opportunity. And let's get into that. That's the crux of this next part here. Let's distinguish ourselves from the left on how we go about combating instances of institutional inequality or inequality in general. And I think that comes down to positive versus negative rights. As conservatives, we only believe in negative rights. You do not have a right to health care and you do not have a right to housing. Okay. Before I get canceled on this, let me clarify that. That doesn't mean that as a country, we shouldn't strive 
for every American to have health care and housing. It just means we go down a slippery slope when we start assigning rights to literally everything that people should have. Because at that point, if you have a right to health care, that means you are thus inherently forcing someone to provide a service for you. And we can see how that's tricky and a slippery slope. Okay, so let's look at the nuance here. Yes, every American should have access to affordable health care. Yes, every American should have access to uh, affordable housing. And the government's not always the best way to do it. They probably need to step in at this situation. Private-public partnerships, we're all about it. But let's be careful about what we're calling rights. Okay, that's the problem here. We do have negative rights. We have a right to not be discriminated against. For example, Justice Gorsuch, in a decision about LGBTQ plus discrimination, argued that those people have a right to not be discriminated against in public spaces. That is a negative right, in my opinion. It's not that they're forcing someone to serve them a positive right. They are just saying that that people of the LGBT plus community have a right to not be discriminated against. Let's be clear here. But just because there's no positive rights doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for those things. But that is how we distinguish ourselves from the left. They are running down a slippery revisionist slope of America of positive rights of which this country was not founded on. It's plain and simple. But let's not try to negate the reality of institutional injustice and racism. Okay. Opportunity. In my opinion, and I think that John and Ryan will agree on this, if we had to use one word, just one, I know there's a lack of nuance there, but one word to describe the party that we want to see, we want to see the party of opportunity. So let me explain how opportunity as a concept is conservative. As I said earlier, we are all born with this idea that we can pursue happiness. You know, it's laid out in our founding documents. So therefore, as I said, if conservatism is about living up to the ideals in the founding documents, of which we have not yet done, then ensuring equality of opportunity is inherently conservative. Because that's what the founders intended, even if the reality is not there. So we should strive to do that. So let's talk about how the left would approach these situations of lack of equal opportunity or just lack of equality in general in this country. So let's discuss institutional injustice in the context of leftist philosophy. We should want equality in terms of how people are respected and how they can achieve things. But equality of outcome in leftist philosophy, especially in radical communist philosophy, is that everyone in the end has the same amount of money. It sounds idealistic to some people, but it's actually extremely inefficient. If I know that regardless of what I do, John, Ryan, and I are going to have the same amount of money, why should I want to take a risk and invest in something? There's no reward. It's an extremely efficient economy to run off of. I know that's more of an economic perspective, but let's just look at it in terms of the founders. They didn't want that because the founders recognized this. Personal responsibility and meritocracy are extremely valuable things. These concepts are things that the country was founded on, but what we, which we have not lived up to. This country is not founded on equality of outcome because that's just inherently wrong. People should have to work for things, but they should also have an equal chance to get there. So we still need that personal responsibility and meritocracy. Let's put that, let's put it out there. That's the caveat why we distinguish from the left. Let's just clarify. The left does seems to not care about personal responsibility and meritocracy. They think regardless of what you do, you should be the same in the end. We're saying no. We're just saying you should be able to start out with the same opportunity and the work you put in and that all that effort should determine your outcome. But here's the caveat from the current 
iteration of the right. They don't acknowledge that right now in America, it's not equal. It's just so sad that they can't even acknowledge that. The failure to address the need for equality of opportunity is not rooted in a wrong interpretation of ideals like the left in terms of outcome being the wrong ideals, but it's a wrong interpretation of the current realities. Right now, the American dream is not achievable for all Americans, but it should be the goal. So at least the conservatives now have the right idea that that's what we should be striving toward, where the left, they're just pushing some ideology of everyone's equal in the end, which is not the American dream. Therefore, it's actually conservative to, number one, recognize that there is inequality in this country. It's institutional. That doesn't mean that every single person is racist. It just means that the systems that have been inherited from the past and which currently pervade the institutional perspective are unequal. It's conservative to recognize that, number one. Number two, it's also conservative to address it. But how we address it is where we're different from the left. Recognizing it is maybe where we're different from the right. Because the current right, for the most part, they're not addressing this reality. The left is addressing it, like we said this with our climate change stuff in the last episode. They are completely going down a revisionist past of American ideas and values. So let's find the middle point here, which is still conservative. Let's not call this centrist, just looking at nuance and balance. So let's talk a bit about textual versus institutional inequality. Conservatives look at the laws right now in 2020 and say, well, there's no law that explicitly discriminate against people of color anymore, right? We got rid of those rightfully. Slavery was abolished. Jim Crow laws were abolished. We have the Civil Rights Act. So some people on the right say, good, we're done. They wipe their hands. Everything's great, right? Why are people of color complaining? They got what they wanted. What that fails to real recognize is that, yeah, for centuries, though, those were laws were on the books and had very real institutional impacts. It pervaded almost every aspect of American society. So just because you repeal the laws doesn't mean that the impacts change. You know, you change the law doesn't change the reality on the ground. So we need to realize that and realize that that's what institutional inequality is. So just because the law doesn't say that doesn't mean that it's not the current reality. I understand these perspectives are new. I did not arrive at them overnight and people are not going to understand them overnight. That's the point. That's the beauty of nuance signaling. I just want to add one quick thing to what Mike was saying. And he, he outlines a number of modern applications of conservatism and conservative thought and conservative principles. And I think that we can, you know, through through this project, through this podcast, we'll explore a number of different applications of these principles to the issues that Gen Z cares about. Again, the point of this at the end of the day is that the GOP is not providing an alternative set of ideology to young people. And young people have been forced to latch on to the left because they're the only ones even remotely talking about the things that they care about, whether it be the environment, whether it be issues of race, immigration, uh, sexism, injustice, um, economic inequality, any, any of those. And the point is that we can have a conversation that's rational, reasonable, pragmatic, prudent, that doesn't that gives that gives folks of our of our generation an, an opportunity to hear an alternative perspective and and just a final thought before I sign off for the week. 
the conservative mind has has been much discussed today, and there are a number of principles that kind of stem from that conservative mind and and that pattern of thinking. But there's also a conservative heart that, um, and actually Arthur Brooks wrote a book that I love called The Conservative Heart. And part of what we're trying to communicate here is that to be a Republican, to be on the right, it's not antithetical to our ideology and our party to care about people that have been left behind, to care about people of color, to care about LGBT people. It's not against our dogma to say, you know what? We acknowledge this is a problem and we're here to listen. And that's the conservative heart. So what John just said is absolutely true. And that's the point we're trying to get across here is because a lot of the criticism that we got is that we're promoting all these quote, radically progressive movements, whereas they're not, they're conservative, we're living up to our ideals. And let me clarify my previous segment about racial inequality, to acknowledge that there are other forms of discrimination and oppression. There are folks in rural Appalachia that don't have the same opportunity to succeed as others, right? I was just focusing on that because it's a relevant topic for today. We got flack for supporting the movement of Black Lives Matter, and they conflated our support with the organization. So I want to acknowledge that. We understand that. But the point we're trying to make is that it is conservative to address structural inequality and seek to correct it by leveling the playing field and the starting point. We're not trying to ensure an equal end. And and that's what I think the, the takeaway should be from here, because I think we were called liberals and Democrats because we wanted change. But the change we wanted is not to change this country. It's to make this country what it was always meant to be. To John and Mike's point, the Republican Party has to be the party of opportunity. We've used that moniker in the past, and it's really important that we use it in the future. And to wrap today's episode up, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to our second episode. And I would like to remind everyone to check out our website, genzgup.org, and join the movement, get involved, make the change that you want to see in your party, chart the new future for the Republican Party, and follow our social media. We're going to be posting a lot of exciting news this week, including new leadership on our team. And we're definitely excited about the future of our organization. And tune in next Monday as we will have an exciting guest on and we will be discussing the future of the Republican Party. And we will see you guys next Monday. Oh,